morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. You know, the song we just sang, there aren't many churches that would be willing to sing that one. Through the fire, through the flood, through the night, through the difficulty, but God gives us a song. It's a perfect song for what we're about to talk about, what the Lord is about to talk about, I should say. We will be listening to him. But what he'll teach us, the way we view things and the way he views things, the way we desire things and the way the Word of God lays it out for us as to what is true and what is holy and what is right. Today we're going to look at just three verses, so you're thinking, ooh, we're going to get out of here quick. <laughs> nope, I'll just tell you right away. Nope, it's very rich and it's very good and it's very appropriate for our world today. We live in an age, a day and age, where in spite of evidence that may be overwhelming, there are times where people hold to their truth no matter what they see. We live in a day and age where there are people who still defend the fact that the earth is flat, in spite of the fact that there are ships that go round and round and round the world and never fall off any kind of an edge. We live in an age where there are people who, to their death, will say we never went to the moon in spite of the fact that we have multiple missions from the late 60s into the early 70s with men who came and went and Russians who would have said they definitely didn't do that if we didn't do that and they will say that this never happened and it was a hoax. And they, in spite of the evidence, will believe that this is what is true. And we have people who believe that Elvis is still alive and working at a quick mark in Little Rock, Arkansas. That one's kind of true, because actually he's working at a truck stop in Lincoln, Nebraska. I just saw him the other day. So. But in spite of the overwhelming evidence, there are people who will hold to what they believe to be true, and it won't matter to them what is presented and what is absolutely true and is what is definitively true. And we're going to see that today. And what could be very easy about a message like the one we're going to hear today from the Lord, from His Word, from Jesus' own mouth, is that, well, that was those Jewish people then. That isn't me today. I won't manufacture my own truth. I'll embrace what he says. And I'm going to tell you, I think the Lord's going to challenge us all today, that that isn't always the case. And he is going to apply this to our lives, and we're going to see that from the Word of God today. And it is rich, and it is vast, and it is convicting. Before we do all of that, let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you and we glorify your name. You are perfect and right and righteous and your words are true. You have displayed your power and your might throughout the ages and throughout eternity. You will continue to do so. You have made your truth known to us from your word and through your son. The evidence is overwhelming that your gospel is the only way, that the cross was the only sufficient and right plan that it has always been, that the death and resurrection of your Son is all that could save us. We know this to be true. Your Word has proven it true. You have proven it true. I pray that we embrace that and that it impacts our lives. I, I know that you will convict us. You always do. I pray for those in here who have not yet believed on your Son, that they will turn and repent and believe that you will draw them to yourself and that their life changes. And for those of us who, who know Him, and He knows us, that our lives change as well, that we become more like Him, that we are progressively sanctified throughout our lives, and that today will be yet another stepping stone in that process. We thank you for your word and the truth of it. We thank you for the consistency of it. And we thank you for this time that we have to gather together as believers in your house and praise you and glorify you and learn from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 12, where we have been for quite some time, and we will be for a little bit longer. And we're going to cover a few verses. And I am going to read them first a little bit out of order of what I normally do because they are short, they aren't very long, and then we'll break down what we're going to look at today. So let's look at this. John chapter 12 should be on the screen for you, verses 32 through 34, 
and then we will break this down. Jesus says, in the midst of this conversation that we have covered with the Greeks and others that were there, some so-called believers and his apostles, he said this, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Very short, precise verses here, and yet we see a lot in this passage or in these passages. Here's what we're going to see, a continuation of our discussion or our understanding or the Lord's teaching of the true purpose of His incarnation. And number one, we're going to see this concept that the Son must be lifted up. We're going to look at that. What does that mean? What does it mean in context? What does it mean to you? Was it, what did it mean to them? This idea of drawing all men to Himself. What does that mean? What is the depth of that? What's the length? What's the narrowness of that? And then third, a misunderstanding of the Messiah that we see here and maybe in your own life. And then finally, us understanding, and I've misspelled counsel there, the whole counsel of God. That's an important element for us today in 2023. Now, last week, and I mean two weeks ago, the last time I was at the pulpit, here's what we saw from Christ How can Christ's soul be troubled? What was he troubled about? And we came to the understanding through Scripture, he was troubled with the concept of bearing the sins, our sins, your sins, my sins, and feeling the wrath of the Father. He understood that more than anyone else and was more sensitive to it, and we decided that we should be sensitive to it as well. That are we as convicted and as as troubled by our sin as Christ was with our sin And this concept of the Lord speaking from heaven, the Father speaking from heaven and authenticating His Son, and then the ruler of this world and and what we are fighting against and what we are fighting for. So that's where we left off, and now we pick this up in verse 32. And back to the text, let's read verse 32 one more time. Here's what it says. Verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. Now at first glance we can look at this particular statement that Jesus makes and we see this term lifted up. And it may conjure in your mind good things that aren't wrong, by the way. Things like what we hear in Lamentation 3.41, let us lift up our hearts and hands in praise to the Lord. We should lift Him up. Or Isaiah 52.13, speaking about the Messiah prophetically, Isaiah says this, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's true. You should think those things. Or maybe New Testament, Philippians 2, 9, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the praise of the Father. Those are all true, are they not? They are. And you should do that in your life. And you should do that this morning. When you walk through these doors to come to church, that should be on your mind. Lifting him high. Lifting him up. The decisions you make throughout the week should be lifting him high and lifting him up. There's no doubt about that. That's true. But contextually, that's not what this is about. As a matter of fact, when this term was used in this moment, here's what we see. This particular statement is equal to crucifixion. And you say, well, how do you know that? Contextually, it tells us, it tells us he specifically said that. If you look at verse 33, this was to show what kind of death he was going to die. Not only that, contextually, we see that the people knew what he was talking about. They realized what he was referencing. And we're going to see as we unpack this, he'd referenced this before. Here's what MacArthur says about this, and he's he's right. I agree with MacArthur. Isn't that a good idea? Apparently, the idea of being lifted up had become synonymous with crucifixion because the Romans had done this to tens of thousands of people around this period of time in the land of Israel, as well as in other parts of the Roman Empire. Let me stop in the middle of his quote. Just imagine that. Living in an age and a day where in your daily walk to work you could see somebody hanging on a cross, naked, ashamed, beaten, broken, dying, and in anguish. And you could see this on a daily basis. Tens of thousands of people went through crucifixion. This was part of their life. None of us have ever witnessed this at all. 
Sure, we've seen it depicted in movies and, and maybe in, 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 a, in a picture or a painting, but we don't understand what that is in reality. They did, and they understood it, and this term lifted up meant that. Back to the quote, people knew what it was to be lifted up in death. Apparently, he spoke of it frequently enough, and we'll, we'll even see that in Scripture today, that his disciples for certain, even the crowds knew that he was, what he was referring to. Our Lord is facing the cross. This passage looks at the cross in its impact, the cross and its effect, the cross and its power. Now, the cross hadn't happened yet, but this is the theology of the cross from the lips of Jesus before he's crucified. He is putting this in our face. He is laying this in our feet to consider, to ponder, to understand. He is putting this right there for you to consider what it means to you. And for them, in this day, in this age, these Jews, these Gentiles, the Greeks that were there, this was a real struggle. And we've seen this from Christ before, as MacArthur mentioned, he's said this frequently. Let's, let's just take a little quick walk through this. John chapter 3, 14 and 15, I want you to notice something about this. This is right before maybe the most famous verse in all of the Bible, right? John three sixteen, which we're going to get to in a moment. Jesus sets the stage by saying this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and we'll get to that in a moment, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And then notice he says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When he said this in John 3, he said this to a Pharisee. He said this to a man who understood the law. He said this to Nicodemus. He tells him in a personal conversation, I'm going to have to be crucified. Nicodemus understood it too. And he knew the law. As we'll hear these Jews mention, as we'll hear these Greeks mention, they knew the law, they knew the Old Testament, they knew the Word of God, and so do we, so do we. And they interpret it as they will, and sometimes so do we. But he tells us here, whoever believes, he puts an emphasis on faith. We are saved by grace through faith in the simple understanding of the gospel and what Christ did. We understand that that is a matter of belief. Well, where does this come from? He's referencing Moses. Well, we're not going to look at the text. I considered going there and really spending time on it, but there's too much depth in these other passages that I didn't have time. But here's what happened. This was essentially this. I'll give you a quick synopsis. The Lord had sent judgment on Israel, as he often did. He had disciplined them. And in this case, many of them, thousands of them, were dying because he sent snakes to, to kill them. Our God will do that at times. But he gave them a way out as well, and he told Moses to do something that just seemed crazy. It just didn't make any sense. I need you to to make this this bronze serpent, put it up on a, a pole. Some think it was a cross, by the way, we don't know. And you need to lift this up, and you're going to tell the people, you got to just look at it in faith, and if you do, you'll be saved. It seems ridiculous, right? It seems crazy. Why would this work? This was God simply saying, do what I say. Do what I say. Trust me, and you'll be saved. It's, it's a very early example of believing in the gospel. Wholeheartedly, maybe not understanding it all, trusting in the Lord that it is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. So that's what we see here. Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, and remember, they were dying, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. By faith, he would trust the Lord that God would do what he says he's going to do. That that they would be freed from this. That they would have life. Now we look forward on this and we go back and we see Jesus saying, same idea. Instead of just temporary life, being saved from the serpent's bite, you'll have eternal life. Jesus is equating that to understanding that we, we believe and we are justified by faith. And It may not make sense to you. You may not understand why the cross had to happen. You may not understand the depths of it. And how could any of us on this side of eternity, right? But we must believe it. A childlike faith that this is what Christ is going to do and has done. We see Jesus saying this again in John 8. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I am He. Well, he's talking again to these Jewish people. They knew who the He was. They understood that He understood that they were desperately waiting for the Messiah. And he said, you will know that I am he. And he's talking about some of them. And this, of course, is to the glory of the Father. Because this is the Father who told him to do this. And he does the Father's will. He understood that some of them would believe. 
I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and I want to show you the fulfillment of this very quickly. We're not going to look at Zechariah 12, but we'll see that later. I put this up here because it is connected. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. And as you go to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, I'm going to bring this passage back up. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. When you have lifted up the sun, and as you're going to Acts chapter 2, just listen for a moment, it says, when you have lifted up the sun. He's putting the blame of the crucifixion on the people who were listening to him. And you may say, oh yeah, those Jewish people. No, you're reading this, are you not? God's word is in front of you, correct? All of those Jewish people who were calling for his crucifixion are no longer breathing. It is in your hands now. Your sin put him on that cross. And if you think, oh, I wouldn't have called for his crucifixion, you should have been here in first hour when we went to Jeremiah 17. And if you're not understanding your own heart, please read Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Because it's desperately wicked, and who could possibly understand it? And God knows the heart. But as we consider this, he is putting this on them. Then, though, you will know that I am he. Acts chapter 2, if we look at this in verse 36, this is Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. And he is challenging the people of Israel. He's challenging the Hebrews, the Jews that were there, many who were calling for Christ's crucifixion. And he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Lord was moving in their hearts. We're going to see later this idea of drawing men to himself. This was going on right here. As we look at this text, you will know that I am he. Some of these people who heard him say this in John 8 are hearing Peter say this in Acts chapter 2. Try to put yourself in that spot. And you're hearing it today. Cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What does Peter say to them? Repent, believe, put your faith in Christ. Look to the Son, the one who lifted up. Believe on him. What Jesus has said over and over in his three-year ministry, Peter is reemphasizing, turn, believe, repent, and be baptized. That's what he's telling him, them to do. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the give, forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them the truth. The fulfillment of this is just a few months later. Pretty impressive when we consider this. And then if we look at verse 41, same chapter, same conversation, same sermon. So those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I'll tell you what, I've done some preaching and teaching in my life, and i got to say, uh, that has never happened in my preaching. Okay, that has never happened, that I know of anyway. But this is how powerful this was. This, was. this is how powerful it still is, by the way. Because we live in a day and age, although this is an impressive number, and it, it should be impressive to you, we live in a day and age where the experts, the theologians, say there are more Christians living today just because of the sheer number of people on planet Earth, 8 billion that maybe have lived throughout the rest of the ages. The, the gospel is still saving people. The gospel will continue to save people until the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom. It will continue to have its effect because that's what God has said will happen. So we know that this is an incredible thing, that although this is kind of discouraging and disappointing to see how the Jewish people are reacting and maybe how the people around you react to the gospel when you share it, I want you to keep in mind there is hope. There are people who will turn and believe. Because the gospel has an effect, and it doesn't come back void. And Jesus loses none that the Father gives him. Not one. That's an encouragement to you and I, believer. That's an encouragement to us as we continue to do our work, the work of an, of an evangelist. Now, here's the second piece of this. We see this concept of drawing all people. If we go back to John chapter 12, the second half of verse 32, he says this, and when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to myself. To myself, draw all people. Now, here's the tendency that some will, and the ditch or the route that some will take this to. Does this mean that everybody is saved? I mean, Jesus is love after all. God loves us. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Is the, does that mean that all are saved? Well, you probably are going to figure out what I'm going to say. I say no, universal salvation is definitely not at hand. John 3.16, I mentioned, we looked at 14 and 15 earlier. I brought it up here on the screen. It says, for God so loved the world. He does. He loves the world. He loves his creation. That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All true. Notice there is an onus on believing in him. 
But there's more. We often stop at verse 16 and don't see 17, 18. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, and by the way, in him here, the Greek really means into his name. Fully invested into his name. Totally sold out, turned, given up all, and invested into his name is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, who is not invested, is not in his name, is not totally sold out, is not drawn by the Father and changed by the the Holy Spirit, is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. From the very jump of the gospel, we don't see universal salvation. And if you need more proof of that, quickly turn to Revelation chapter 14. This is pretty rough, but I want you to see this. I hate for us to see a passage like this where it says he's going to draw all people to himself and for you to think, well, that's everybody getting saved. Clearly, that's not the case. Now, we are going to cover the book of Revelation and eschatology here in a few months. And I think that's going to be a fascinating study. And although I have taught it many times and at many levels, It's amazing how the Word of God just continues to reveal itself, and we will learn more as we go forward in this. But there is some rough stuff in the book of Revelation. And just to give you an idea, the context here in Revelation 14 is we see angels and their their responsibility of bringing judgment, and one particular angel, we'll pick this up, a third angel in this particular context is talking about those who swear allegiance to the Antichrist during this last seven years of God's judgment, his wrath that will be poured out before his kingdom comes to this earth. And in the midst of this, they will have to make a decision. Are they going to put their faith in Christ, and some will, or are they going to put their faith in the Antichrist? And here's the context, and you say, well, this hasn't got anything to do with me. It does, because the concept of this is really extending beyond. It's to anyone who rejects the Son. Another angel looked, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. And that is the key. Remember, that's what troubled the Lord. He was going to feel the wrath for you, believer. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And then the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And I I want you to consider this. Anyone who tells you, the Rob Bells of the world who who write books and sell a lot of them, that hell isn't forever, haven't read Revelation chapter 14. I don't know. Forever and ever seems like a long time. And I I hate to read this to somebody and then try to give them a way out to say, but that's not really what he means. No, it's really what he means. Hell is forever, and it is real. Universal salvation is not a reality. It is not in the book that is in front of you, and it never will be because God's word will not change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not. And that is the reality of this. Now you think, okay, I, I don't, you know, that's just for those who take the mark. That's not true. I want you to skip ahead here to verse chapter 20. Because those of us today who reject Christ, who are sent to Sheol, who are sent to our kind of temporary hell, here's what this says. You should be in verse 14, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, picking it up at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. By the way, this is the great white throne judgment. We'll get to that in quite a while, but it'll come. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Hmm. By the way, I don't want to be judged according to what I have done because I will come up short. I'll I'll come up wanting, okay, and and so will you. I want to be judged on what Christ has done, and you should want that too. Back to the text. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and your name isn't in there, Unless you've put your faith in Christ by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone, your name's not in there. He was thrown into the lake of fire, the same lake of fire that is referenced in chapter 14, the same one that Jesus references multiple times throughout the Gospels. This is a reality. Universal salvation is not what this verse is talking about, clearly. 
I pray that you understand that. But what we can understand here is there's something deeper here. What we see is the next statement is those drawn by the Father. He's going to draw people to himself. And I bring up this statement. Specifically, we see Jesus saying this in another way, drawn by the Father. And I want you to consider this. I'm taking this from John chapter 6. But I want you to consider the Greek word here. It's kind of interesting. Because when we look at the Greek word, and it's the same root Greek word that we see in John 12 as we see in John 6, a drawing is this. It's to drag, to pull, to persuade, to unsheath, and notice, unsheath against resistance. That's interesting. And you think, ah, who cares? What, What does that mean? As a matter of fact, the same thing was used, the same word was used when Peter and the apostles were trying to pull up that huge catch of fish that Jesus miraculously, hard to do, couldn't get out. When Peter was unsheathing his sword, same Greek word, hard, there's resistance. When you got saved, you were resisting Jesus the whole time. You didn't go after him. You weren't seeking him. You weren't trying to find salvation. You didn't want to give up your life and become a slave to him. No, he, against you, pulled you out of the depths of hell. He did that. And it's the same idea here. So I want you to think of the depths of that Greek word when we consider what the Father has done and what Christ has done. And when he was lifted up, what he's doing in your heart and what he did in your heart, by the way, if you're in Christ. Against Everything you wanted, he saved you. Blessed be the Lord. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him drags, pulls, against resistance, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is an act of God. It is eternal and it is supernatural. And you should live in thankfulness of that every single day. Drawn by the Father. Amazing what we see here. This is an incredible consideration when we consider what Christ has done for us. Going further into John 6, look at these two passages. Don't want to spend a lot of time here. Notice he says, all that the Father gives me, similar word, draws for me, gives me, what the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. When the Father saves you, you're always saved. When Christ died for you, you're always saved. That happened. Verse 65, same passage, he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is a supernatural event. And even in the high priestly prayer, just hours before his crucifixion, Jesus, speaking to the Father, reiterates this point. Since you have given him authority, speaking of himself, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is a supernatural work. When we consider all people this isn't all of the world. It's, it's, it's not that, but it is all who believe. Here's what Piper has to say about this. This concept, talking about this particular passage in this statement, this might mean that the death of Christ when preached with clarity has a general drawing effect on all people. Maybe, he's saying. This is the way it seems to be usually taken, or that it draws all kinds of people. That could be. I doubt that it means that. He thinks that it means this. I think it means that when Christ died, when he was lifted up on the cross, he actually secured, obtained, guaranteed the homecoming of his sheep, the ingathering of his children. In other words, his death not only makes it possible to offer salvation freely freely and truly to everyone so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life, which we covered, but his death also secured with certainty the bringing in of all his sheep. We'll see that later, John 10. The ingathering of the children of God who are scattered abroad, the Gentiles, no doubt about it. It is specific. When Jesus drew all men to himself, it's all of his children to himself. That's contextually what we see, not only in John, but throughout all the Gospels. Not only throughout all the Gospels, but through all the epistles. That God knows what he's doing. And God is in control of salvation, and we are not. So let's go beyond that. I think there is something more to this. All peoples here certainly has reference to Jews and Gentiles. And why I bring this up is because this matters to you and I. As I look around here in this particular church, I see Gentiles. All Gentiles. Now maybe some of you are saying, wait, no, no, I'm a Hebrew. That may be, but you've never told me. I think we are in a a midst of a bunch of different types of Gentiles. And here's the beauty of Scripture and the beauty of of the cross. Look at John 11 referenced earlier he did not say this of his own accord but being high priest this is talking about 
that we referenced this before, really a false priest, a false prophet, but God used him in this case, Caiaphas, the year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, not for the Jewish nation only, the Hebrew nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So that's the reference that Piper was making. We see this also in John chapter 10. And I have other sheep, Jesus said, not of this fold, not of Israel, not of the Hebrews. That's you, that's me. I must bring them also. Jesus always had you in mind. When he's talking about all men, he's talking about you, not just Jewish people. You can see the broadness of this term. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. All men, Jews, Gentiles, all men. And then one more we see here, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For not just Jewish people who, who have sinned, but Gentiles who have sinned. The whole world, going back to John three sixteen, Not universal salvation, not everybody, but believers. For believers. Look at some of these encouraging texts. Now these I put in here, and I'm going to just briefly go through them in kind of rapid-fire succession. But I put them in here to encourage you. Because when Jesus is speaking of his death on the cross, and he is considering, as we looked at last week, the incredible responsibility he would have and the horrific torment of taking on your sins, he has lovingly you in mind when he speaks these words. When he considers what he's about to do, you're part of the all men if you're in Christ. And here's what we see. I want to just hit these quickly, but it's an encouragement to me. These all people are you, believer. It says this, Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness, what Christ did on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. That's an encouragement to you, believer. All men, you're part of that. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The Lord was pleased to crush his son, Isaiah 53.10, for you. What an encouragement. That's how much he loves you how he will also do with him graciously give us all things. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, he died for all believers that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What an encouragement. He died for you, now live for him. What an encouragement. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all believer, which is the testimony given at the proper time, not at fat the proper time, at the proper time. Some th- I gotta, you know, I'm, I'm working long hours now. Sometimes I'm putting these in at late hours, so bear with me. At the proper time. And then one more, an encouragement to believers. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him for, who for a little while, while he was made lower than the angels, he's humbled himself to come down here. You want to know the depths of his love for you? Left the glories of heaven, came down here, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death everyone he tasted it for you what an encouragement to the believer your savior loves you oh he he challenges you and we'll see him do that today but he loves you he loves you with a depth and a and a and a righteousness and a perfection and a pureness that we could never understand not until eternity chapter 12 verse 33 that's one verse verse 33 back to john chapter 12 verse 33 i'll bring it up on the screen it says this he said this to show what kind of by what kind of death he was going to die so once again we understand and as we looked at before what kind of death how he had to die now you may think to yourself why does this matter well it matters because the word of god predicted it it matters because at this church and i pray that at every bible believing church We rely on the fact that this particular book in front of us is right every time. 10 out of 10, 100%, never fails. Not a single thing can be wrong or the whole thing is wrong. Just think about that level, that standard that we we hold to the Bible. Only the Bible could do this. So as you look at this, Jesus in his discussion with Pilate, or as he is about to have a discussion with Pilate, This concept in John 18, verses 31 and 32, Pilate said to them, to the Jews, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. That's what he says in verse 31. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's what they say to him right before this. Now, I'm going to pause. I didn't bring that up on the the screen. 
He says this to fulfill the word, that this is the kind of death Jesus was going to die. They said, oh, we can't kill people. you got to do it. Now, here's what tells you God is in sovereign control of the cross. They killed people. If they didn't, we got to question what happened to Stephen. Because just a few months later, or a year later, we don't know exactly how long, Stephen was stoned to death by this same exact group of men. They decided to put him to death. But God wasn't going to let that happen because it had been written that he had to die in a certain way. The Jews would stone people to death. That is not what was predicted about the Messiah. So when we look at this, we don't see kind of an accidental happening or things just worked out. God was in sovereign control. This concept, this attitude of the Sanhedrin in this moment, which changed in a different moment, was controlled by God. This had to happen. Jesus had to die in that way. And I don't want to spend a tremendous time on this, but you know the proof. I mentioned Zechariah 12 earlier. We know specifically all of the Jewish men who are about to speak here and say we know the law, they knew the prophets. They knew what it said. And we know that when the predictions of the Messiah came, they were specific. Let's just look in the middle of this one. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. That's future. That's yet future when Christ is about to return at the end of the tribulation. So that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, fulfilled at the cross, fulfilled in the future, they shall mourn for him. Now, we know specifically this tells us in in what way the Messiah had to die. There had to be a piercing. Now, that's not particularly specific enough. Stoning wouldn't do it. He had to be pierced. Now, it could be a sword. He could fall on an implement. There's a, there's a knife that could be involved. That could, that could be the case. But fortunately, we have more than just Zechariah. We have Isaiah chapter 53. Let's look at these. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice the other thing I highlighted here. With his wounds, we are healed. Now, there has to be stripes. There has to be a beating. There has to be... There has to be something even more severe than just piercing. There has to be a humiliation involved as we look at the the text here. Afflicted. The fact that he wouldn't open his mouth, that he wouldn't fight against his accusers, that he would be chastised and mocked. We see all the detail here, and there's more. There's more. Isaiah 52 tells us he couldn't even be looked upon because his face was so marred. We know that that is true of our Savior. It had to be that way. You think, okay, that's pretty specific. And I can see the detail there, but is that all? No, that's not all. We know Psalm chapter 22, very specific. All my bones and joints are out out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. As doctors look at this in retrospect, this is exactly what the type of idea of how someone dies in crucifixion. That it involves suffocation, and this, this feeling is felt. This concept is felt. But look at the very specifics at the end. They have pierced, not just pierced, his hands and his feet. Now, just to give you a perspective, 1,000 years before Christ walked on planet Earth in his incarnation, this was written down. 700 years before Christ walked on Earth, Isaiah was written down. 500 plus years before Christ walked on Earth, Zechariah 12 was written down. This had to happen this way. It is the only way. It is the only way. And these men that were here knew these passages too. And by the way, there are a lot of people who know these passages today. And in our number one, Pastor made reference to the fact that intellectual assent is not going to save anybody. He, he quoted for us um, several quotes about the idea of, of, uh, of learning more and gaining knowledge and going to institutions and, and getting more, and that that is not the way of gaining understanding. The fear of the Lord is, is the way of gaining understanding. There are a lot of people who understand intellectually what the Word of God says, but they don't understand the impact and the truth of this and the eternality of it and the prophetic nature of it. Because they immediately, although they know these things, they certainly have to know these things. Notice what they say. Look at verse 34. Look at what they say. Chapter 12, verse 34. Their reaction is this. They hear him say, he's going to be crucified. They've seen the evidence for three years that he has walked on water, he has fed the 5,000, he's turned water into wine, he's, he's healed the lame, he's made the blind see, he's made the deaf hear, 
He has resurrected the dead. They've witnessed this. They're pretty sure he's the Messiah. But they're held up because they have a preconceived idea of what their Messiah should look like. And notice what they said. We have heard from the law, the word of God, which, by the way, we just looked at. We looked at the the law. We looked at the word of God. We looked at the prophets, that the Christ, the, the Messiah, remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you say he's got to die? And of course, Christ could have been sarcastic and said, because the law says so. That's, what I, that's why I could say it, because the Word of God says so. And then they go so far as to say, who is the Son of Man? Are you really Him? Maybe you're not Him. You can see their disbelief in this statement. Keep in mind, some of these people here were professing believers at this time, but when He challenges their idea, their truth of who He should be, and keep in mind what is always formulating in the mind of the of the jewish man at this time is we want to get out from under the thumb of the roman government we want to have the promises that have been promised and i don't blame them as i look at the world around us i long for the lord's return nothing wrong with that i I long for the time where he sets up his kingdom and he makes right the wrong that he turns turns the, this world that is so wicked and depraved and he rules it with an iron fist. I can't wait for that, and I'm sure you can't either. But in the meantime, in God's sovereign plan, he has you doing hard work here, and he expects you to do it. And he expects you to embrace that, as we'll look at today. But they get, they get this idea, this idea that the Son of Man, that the Messiah, by the way, interchangeable, we don't have time for it, but just to give you an idea of where this comes from, Daniel 7 9 through 10, I'm not going to take us there, even though I put it up here. You think I'm going to take you there, but I'm not. And verses 13 through 14, where the ancient of days hands authority to the Son of Man. They knew this passage. This is from the prophets. They are using this term. Are you this guy, this one who's been given authority? Daniel 7 gives us clear understanding. I bring this up because I'm going to bring up Daniel 9 here in just a moment. And Daniel 9 is something they knew as well. They should have seen it. Where are they getting this from? How could, they think, how could the Son of Man possibly, possibly just die? That's not possible. Well, it's because they've selected which verses they like and which verses they don't. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, and I'm going to really challenge you with this here in just a few moments, this is something we're susceptible to today as well. Believer and non-believer, by the way. That we may select which ones we like and... I'll go so far as to say, claim which verses we like and which verses we don't. Here's what they saw, and these are good and right and perfect. This is what they knew. I'm going to rapid fire these for you. You might think, oh, they were way off. No, they weren't way off. They saw Scripture. Psalm 89 says this, I will establish your offspring forever, speaking of the Messiah. Build your throne for all generations. True. Verse 35, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. I'm going to keep this promise. His offspring shall endure forever. True. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. They were right to think that the kingdom of God would be forever. They were right. But they picked that and just held to that. They didn't look beyond that. 2 Samuel chapter 7, same thing. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's true. That's true. Rapid fire, Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. True. These are all true statements. Isaiah chapter 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. True. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forever. Forevermore. That's true. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. They were understanding the passages correctly, but just the ones they liked. But just the ones they liked. They're not wrong. This is true. Ezekiel 37, let's just continue. They shall dwell in the land that I give them, my servant Jacob, where their fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. True, true, true. But it was all what they wanted to hear. If your mind is focused on all the blessings and good and, and, and the things that you consider in the Bible that are pleasant to hear, first of all, I'll tell you, you're in the wrong church. There are others that you can find that every Sunday. 
but you're also narrow-minded. You're focused on nearsightedness. You're not seeing the full understanding of this. We understand this is, there's more to it. And as I mentioned, Daniel 9, they should have kept reading. Certainly, they liked what they saw in Daniel 7, but look at Daniel 9. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. That's speaking of the Messiah. The Messiah will come, but then he'll be cut off. They should have known it. Not only that, Daniel gave them the, the timeline for it. And there were a few who understood it. If you look at the, t- the detail of this, and we'll get there when we get to Revelation, I'll, I'll spend some time on this. To the very year, Daniel had it predicted when the Messiah would come. And there were a few who understood this. There were a few who saw this, but not many, because they only focused on the parts that they liked. They didn't see the full understanding, the full picture. So I'm going to end with this today. What about you? What about you and what about me when we consider the word of God that is in front of you? Did the Jewish people that were there listening to Jesus, did they know the word of God? Yes, all the verses I just ran through were running through their minds. They saw them all, they knew them all. But what about you? The whole counsel of God should be SEL. The whole counsel of God. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? I'm going to bring up a passage about what Paul says of his teaching, and then I want to give you some examples here. And then we're going to break this down and make this really relevant to today. Here's what Paul tells to this group of elders, this group of leaders, and he says this, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. Done my job. I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink back from it. What Paul is saying here is, I'm teaching you all of it. I'm not hiding it from you. I'm not shrinking, it, shrinking back from you. It's not all popular. We'll see later that Peter re- reiterates that and, and doubles down on that, that Paul's teachings can be difficult. But today, in 2023, as we sit here and we consider God's Word, the whole counsel of God, do you handpick the verses you like and disregard the ones you don't? Let me give you a few examples of how that looks today. There are some who might take Galatians 5.1 and say, ooh, this is good. For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's a good one. And, set, and stand firm, therefore, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't buy into this idea of legalism. You don't have to impress him or follow his word. And then they totally disregard 1 Peter 1.15 and 16. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Go, we don't want to hear that. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Or 1 Peter 2, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You can handpick the verses you like. Or how about this popular verse? Jeremiah 29, 11, which by the way isn't even for the modern day believer, but some of it is certainly true. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Sounds good, and it's true by the way. The hope of heaven, the hope of eternity, what we have discussed, the truth for believers is absolutely true. They look at that, but then they will totally ignore Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That doesn't sound like plans for good. I pray that this isn't you. Galatians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. You don't have to do anything. But then Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Hmm. Full counsel of God. Are you handpicking the ones you like? Let me keep going. Romans 8, 28, here's a good one. People have this posted all over their houses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to who love him are called according to his purpose. Okay, now we think about that. That's true, isn't it? But boy, I think we can define good the way we want to, can't we? We can define it the way we want to, and we consider consider that, and we don't want to consider 2 Timothy 3:12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. By the way, that's good. Persecution is good. Suffering is good. In this life there will be trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. That's good. God put you in the fire to put you on display. My brother-in-law, who passed away over a year ago, he died from cancer. That was good. Why? Because his life was put on display. And he proclaimed the name of Jesus. 
And the gospel was sent out not just to people in his community, but in Indiana and the whole country because of his testimony, because God put him through the fire, and he killed him. He killed him. But that's good because God's name was proclaimed, and the gospel was furthered. That's good. Would, the, would, would you consider that good in your life if God put you through that kind of trial? I pray that you would. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. True. But somebody who reads that might take 1 Corinthians 14 and the structure of the church and throw it out. Or 1 Timothy 2 and eldership, or Titus 1 and eldership and throw that out. Oh, we're all one. There's no structure down here for church and what men and women should do because we're all one in Christ. This is true, but then there's the full counsel of God. You see where we're going with this? John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's awesome. Jesus laid his life down for you. And they'll stop there and not go to the very next verse, which Jesus defines his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you to do. You see this? You can handpick verses that are right next to each other and not look at it in context. And we love to, to look at salvation and understand salvation, and we think we got it. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas, this miraculous event. And the, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. True statement. True statement, right? But if that's all we look at, and we don't look at Paul's defense before Agrippa, where Paul says this, I teach the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That belief and repentance go hand in hand. If we only just look at one verse or two, we can formulate our own theology, doctrine, and religion, and our own Messiah. And we fall right into the same trap that the Jews, the Greeks, the, the, the men that were there listening to Christ and claimed to be believers and then totally outright rejected him when he told them what was really true. Be careful. Be careful. So what do we do with the full counsel of God? Let me end with this. Let me challenge you with some of these things. Let me challenge you with this. Do you trust the full counsel of God? Do you believe this statement? Things that you should already know, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Do you believe that? Do you trust it? That every word in this book is true and will happen, will be fulfilled, and is impactful for you? Notice what it's good for. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Do you believe that? Do you look at it in that fashion? And I don't mean for the person next to you. I mean for you. When I'm preaching to you, there is nothing more convicting than preparing a sermon, let me just tell you. And it wrecks me every week. And I, I, I am not sufficient, and, and nor am I worthy to be standing in front of you telling you these things because I am the worst, I'm the chief of sinners because the Word of God shows it to me. And that should be true of you too because it is breathed out by God. Do you believe it? Let me go to this. Do you love it? Do you love the whole counsel of God? Time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They love their passions, their desires. They don't love the Word of God as it is written. They love to use it to suit their own passions. We can fall into that. But I want to do this, but I like to do this, but I feel like, but I was made like this. And you don't let the Word of God transform you because you love you more than you love Him. You love your desires more than you love the Word of God. Do you love the whole counsel of God? Interesting, I was, uh, I was throwing this at Mindy and my wife, those of you who don't know who she is, but my wife, and I was telling her where I was going with this, and she said, oh, interesting. Just by random chance, my devotion this morning was about this very thing. Just random chance, that just happens like that. She said, that was a great quote from Alistair Begg, and uh, in her devotional, I wrote this, uh, typed this in, hopefully there's no typos, but here's what Alistair says, and this was the same day, this actually was later in the afternoon, she had just read it this morning, and she said, whoa, this is cool, you should use this, and when she said, you should, I will, here's what it says, when reading the Gospels, we may become distinctly unsettled as it becomes clear that Jesus interferes in our lives, yes, it's for our good, but nevertheless, he interferes. Indeed, in his autobiography, C.S. Lewis refers to Jesus as, and I love this term, the transcendental interferer. 
<laughs> Isn't that neat? Adding Jesus to a little corner of our existence is easy and non-intrusive. It's another thing entirely to allow the transcendental interferer to take over every, every aspect of our lives and command from us complete obedience. His perfect authority is an issue we must consider in every decision we make. Oh, how relevant. So we are faced by unsettling question. Am I living according to my natural desires and the rules I have fashioned? Or am I seeking to joyfully submit to my Savior every day and in every way? It is only when we choose to bow down before Jesus' authority, acknowledging his lordship over our time, our talents, our money, our everything, that we can truly begin to embrace him as Lord and Savior. How relevant, right? How relevant. And then let me just challenge you with this. Do you speak the whole counsel of God? Do you speak it? Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. He's saying this to Jeremiah, sometimes a reluctant, uh, a broken, they call him the crying prophet because he had such a burden. Speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. You think that's just Jeremiah. No, it is not. You are his ambassador. He is making an appeal through you, believer. Are you holding back every word? that he tells you to speak, are you holding back some of those words or are you proclaiming it with boldness? Here's what we see out of Micaiah. Pastor and I, both of us have him as a, one of our favorite prophets. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. That's what I gotta say. Now, no matter what the consequences, he took a beating for it, was thrown in jail. It was 400 against one. He said, what the Lord says, that's what I'm gonna say. And then Jeremiah, notice his heart, that reluctance, oh man, the Lord, I, he had a struggle. I, I, I don't want to tell him, but he says this. His conclusion is this. If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Is that what you feel? Because if you're a believer with the Holy Spirit in you, that is in you. That is true. There is a Holy Spirit burning inside of you, shut up in your bones, and he will make you miserable until you say all that he says, until you tell the people around you who are lost and dying the truth and what they need to hear, the full counsel of God. He's called you to it. He's called you to it. And we know we are called to understand his word. 2 Timothy 2.15, we know to do our best to work hard, depending on your translation. Study, depending on your translation. 2 Timothy 2.15, to present yourselves to God as approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling, rightly dividing the word of truth. If you're going to take the word of God to people, if you're going to take the word of God to the lost, know the word. Know it and know it from front to back. Use this, this book that is a gift to mankind, a gift to you, believer, the sword, right here, your weapon, the only one you've got. Know it, use it, rightly divide it so that you can do the work of an evangelist and speak the whole counsel of God. What an incredible thing. And as we consider what we're doing here and, and how, we're, how we're living our lives today, I'm going to end with this. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm only going to spend a brief moment on this. 2 Peter chapter 3. Do you live the whole counsel of God? Do you live it? Do you live the whole counsel of God? 2 Peter chapter 3. We're not going to read this whole passage, even what I've put up here. Contextually, Peter is talking about the end of all things, how the Lord's going to bring judgment, that he is going to, to consume this world with fire. We know that that is true, and that's going to happen. But he, he says this so he can put us in give us a perspective and put things in perspective for us so that we understand what we should be doing in the short time that we have. If these things are thus, he says in verse 11, that, 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 that things will be burned up, that the coming of the Lord is true, that this is going to happen. Let's skip down to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. How? Be in the word of God. Know it. Do it. Live it. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them from, from these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Let me just pause there. The Word of God isn't always easy. 
And, and it isn't always easy to accomplish or do or obey. But it's all true. And it may be hard, but you need to embrace it and trust it. Just as, as the Jewish people had to look at this crazy idea of looking up at this serpent who was lifted up, this bronze serpent, trust the Lord. You need to trust the Word of God, even if you don't understand it all. We won't on this side of eternity, but this is the answer. It's hard. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do in other scriptures. You, though, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But here's what you do. You grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how he ends his letter. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Live it. You live the full counsel of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this time and your word. We thank you for the truths of it. We thank you for the certainty that your word is true and our truth is not. We thank you for the finished work on the cross. We thank you that your son was willing to do the thing that no one else could do. We're thankful that salvation was bought and paid for, not by us, but by the perfect and blameless and and flawless Lamb. We thank you for the fact that salvation is for us, that if by grace through faith we believe in what Jesus did and his finished work on the cross, we too can be saved. And these truths and these promises and this hope can be true of us. I pray for all of us who are in Christ already and that we understand that we are called to live and speak and love and embrace the full counsel of God, not just what we want. Convict us, change us, mold us into what you want us to be today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.